but I, I wanted to minister tonight about the time between Palm Sunday and the Last Supper, because a lot happened then, and um, the people were expecting Jesus to become king at that point, and they were excited on Palm Sunday, and they were with him, and they were like, yeah, Jesus, you're going to get those Romans, and it's kind of like today when you think about it, because we're waiting, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, amen, we're waiting for something to happen. We're waiting for it sooner than, rather sooner than later when you hear of digital currency and famines and, you know, your water supply, everything that is negative, it just seems like we're being bombarded with it. But we can't become disappointed and be the ones that are looking for the return of the Lord and then at the end of the week they're shouting crucify him. So we have to now bear down more in our faith than what we ever have. If you're not going to witness to somebody now, what are you going to do if you end up being martyred for your faith? And that's a possibility. And you know, you're going to go, oh dear, that's not that again. Well, yeah, we need to keep hearing it because we need to be know that even though a bad thing might happen to us, God is with us, and whatever it is, the Apostle Paul calls it a light momentary affliction. So we can bear what's going to happen up ahead. But we don't want to be like the ones that are waving palm branches and going, oh, hallelujah, and then we're crucifying them four days later. So I just want to go through, after Jesus was, after he came into Jerusalem, he went to the temple. That was the first thing that he did was he went to the temple. And the Passover was traditionally held on the 14th day of the month, and the triumphant entry was on the 10th day. That was the day that the law appointed the Paschal Lamb to be taken up and set apart for that service. So that very same day that the Paschal Lamb was being taken up, Jesus entered Jerusalem. There's so many things, and if you look at this story, it is so rich. Like the donkey. Did you talk about the donkey this morning? And the donkey came in, you know, the colt, he rode the colt, but he had the mama in the back, signifying the Old Testament, signifying Israel. Everything that God does is with such precision. So we need to trust that in the end times, he hasn't lost any of that yet, right? That whatever's going to happen in the end times is going to be with the same precision that the crucifixion happened. He was very precise at the birth of Christ. He was very precise with the prophecies that came forward. So we can rest and relax. We don't have to be afraid. And when you start to get disappointed because things are not happening the way we think they should be happening, then just think of this story where they were looking for a king. They wanted Jesus to be king right then on earth. Well, it wasn't his time to be king on earth. But we ha it's important that we can see that on his last week, he spent it as the sovereign king, putting his kingdom here on earth in total order. Because he started to teach. He got into the temple. He, he addressed the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He taught on the purpose of the church. He warned the uh, false teachers. He gave us proper conduct for the saints. He had all this teaching. It was like bam, 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 bam for three days, four days until the Last Supper. But he was teaching. He was getting people ready. And yet he, it said when he was when he was before the high priest, he opened on his mouth. Well, why did he do that? Well, because he had previously done that the last three days that we're going to see. He pronounced woe upon the religious leaders. He did all these things during that time. So when it was time to be crucified, he was done talking except to say it is finished. So this is what he did during the time when he came into Jerusalem. And I'm just going to go through it because there's like five chapters in Matthew. Go back and read it and really ask the Holy Spirit to show you and you'll see the order. And you'll see just God is so amazing. He's just taking care of everything for us. So here we are at the Passover. And the beginning of Jesus' ministry, 
He came in and he cleansed the temple. First thing he did, and you can read that in John chapter 2, he went in and he cleansed the temple. The last thing he does in the temple, well, the beginning of the last, he goes into the temple, and guess what? It's got to be cleansed again. So that's the first thing that he does is he gets rid of the money changers and he cleanses the temple. And we have to be looking out for that because just because it was cleansed once, see, it had to be cleansed again. Just because we get cleansed once, we have to get cleansed again. See the parallels? I mean, there's parallels all over the place. Have to be looking out for the compromise. We have to look out that we don't get slothful. You know, because we've all been Christians for a long time. So after a while, it's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard this before, you know, the, the triumphant entry. You know, what are you going to tell me new? Well, when you come to church, ask God to give you fresh ears to hear so you can hear something fresh all the time. We have to slap ourselves sometimes so that we're not slothful when we come in. And we really have to pay attention to what's being said. We have to be in lookout. Because we have to remember that he came and he cleansed the temple twice. It's not the same thing. He came, he cleansed it. So on the first time when he cleansed it, they said, give us a sign. The disciples said, give us a sign of the, that you're the Messiah. And he said, well, I'm going to destroy this temple. And in three days, it's going to raise up again. And the, the disciples remembered that when Jesus was crucified. They remembered that from the first time. So this is what he declared. At the end of the ministry, he cleansed the temple, and then he set the temple in order. And not only did he declare the temple to be a house of prayer, because he said this shall be a house of prayer, but he also, in Matthew, Matthew 21, he called it a place of healing. The blind and the lame came to him, and they healed him in verse 14. He called it a place for children. Amen? And a place for praise. A place for learning about God with the teaching and the preaching of the word. And all of those are important. So Jesus came and he set the temple in order. And you can go back and read it. And I don't want to read it because, like I said, we're going through scripture tonight. So go back and read it. And then he left. And on the way there, or no, on the way to the temple, I'm sorry, he got hungry and he saw a fig tree that had leaves on it. So apparently, I've never had, a, I've never seen a fig tree, but when there's leaves on it, that means there's fruit. So it's kind of like a teaser. You see leaves? Ooh, there must be fruit. So um, he looked on it, but there was no fruit on it. And he cursed the tree, and the tree died the next day. The disciples were like, whoa, Jesus, that's pretty cool. But the fig tree symbolized Israel, full of beautiful leaves, but no fruit. And keep in mind, this is on that time between the triumphant entry to the Last Supper. Keep in mind that time frame through the whole, through the whole thing. And Jesus cursed the fig tree to demonstrate his authority to release both blessing and curses. And he instructed the disciples to have faith in the power of your words. Your words are important in what you say. What you say about your situation and yourself. And I'm not talking about, you know, creating things with your mouth or anything else. But we do create with our mouth. We do create with our mouth. But not in the way that it's gotten so off balance. That if you speak it, you know, you're going to have a mansion and everything. He said, no, according to the will of God, we create with our mouth. Because that's how God created the planet. He spoke it and it happened. He gave us precedent for that. And here Jesus said in Matthew 21, 21 and 22, And he said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this, which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all these things, whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. So he showed, he gave the fig tree as an example of what? Of prayer. Pray. Pray how? Pray in belief. Don't look at these circumstances in the world and start praying in unbelief. Oh God, help me. Oh God, look at this. Oh God, look at that. 
No, get some scriptures and start standing on it. Pray and believe. Pray and believe. Pray that God would put a shield over you. Pray that God would help you. God would bless you. God would give you wisdom. He said, ask and ask in belief. Don't just doubt. We have no time to doubt right now. We need to stay in faith. We don't know. I mean, I, I read things. I'm sure you read things on the internet. This digital cur currency is coming fast and furious on us. So then what? Well, I don't know yet what. We'll have to see, won't we? But we just can't get scared of what's going to happen. Because just like God had the plan for Jesus to be crucified, he's got a very precise plan for each of us. And if we just keep going forward, God's going to bless us. He's going to keep us. And whatever needs to be done, we're going to have the grace to do it. Amen? So then he went into the temple after he cursed the fig tree to teach the people. And the people were confronted. Oh, Jesus was confronted by the chief priests. Now they were kind of a different kind of bunch. You know, they said they spoke for God. And you think of all people that they would recognize Jesus. But see, he was just, he was so anti-Pharisee, anti-Sadducee, that they, they just got so angry at him. And they asked him about his authority in Matthew 21, 23 through 27. And when he was coming to the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus had some pretty, pretty stout words for them. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing. Which, if you tell me, I and likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. So let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, whence, it was, whence was it, from heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if, you shall, if we say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why then didn't you believe him? But if we say of men, we fear the people, for they all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Well, neither can I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he was constantly putting the religious leaders in their place. And every time he did it, they'd get madder and madder and madder. And Jesus exposed them. He exposed their motives. And he said, Let me tell you two parables. So I'm just going to go quickly because, like I said, we have a lot. So the chief priests and the elders were in the temple that day, but also there was just a lot of plain old common folks there. So Jesus said, just let me tell you two parables. The first one was in Matthew 21, 28. was a parable of two sons. The first son refused to help his father in the vineyard, but he later changed his mind and went to work. The second son said he would go, but he didn't. So Jesus challenged his listeners as which one did the will of the father. And then he directly said to the priests that the publican and harlots, who, who will, those who repent, will enter the kingdom before you will. So he just kept poking at them and poking at them. John, Matthew 21, 33 through 46 is a second parable about the wicked husbandman who was left in charge of the vineyard. And because he, he thought the master did not see him, he began to mistreat his servants to the point of killing him. Then the master sent the son, and he said, Surely they'll respect the son. And they killed him too. And in this parable, Jesus was letting the Pharisees know that he knew of his plot, that they were going to kill him. So he kept giving them information about what was going on. And the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was speaking about them, and they were just totally enraged. And I'm sure by the time they got Jesus in that court and they were whipping him, I'm sure they were taking a lot of this out on him. And they got the people in the crowd whipped up enough onto their side to scream, crucify him. And he said in here, he said, But last of all they sent his son, saying they will reverence him. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slay him. 
And when the Lord therefore of the vineyard come, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits of in their season. And Jesus said unto them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builder rejected, the same, is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruit thereof. And he might have even had the branch of the fig tree in his hand when he said it. And that's a little embellishment, but anyways. It just made them, it just enraged them. And after he gave those two parables, then he turned to the people. Now the people had been really misused by the Pharisees. And he wanted to give comfort, I believe, to those who really love God and those who wanted to know, well, Jesus, okay, you know, what, what is the right thing to do? So Jesus in Matthew 24, 1 through 14, spoke a parable about the marriage supper feast. He was teaching that there was one way to get to heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees made it so difficult to follow God that many people probably just gave up. Their long list of do's and don'ts probably discouraged them, but Jesus spoke simply and he gave them hope. That hope that if they did things that God himself required, they would certainly go to heaven. And then he told the marriage supper story. It was customary in those days for the king to provide wedding garments for the guests. And there was one guest at the feast who had on his own clothing. And that symbolized that he was trying to get a seat at the table without going through the king to get the clothes. Jesus said when the king saw that man, he was angry and asked him, Do you think you could come in here without the proper garment? And the king said to bind him hand and foot and take him away. So it's pretty rule that, pretty clear that Jesus said that there's rules into getting into heaven, that we have to have the, the clothes of righteousness. We can't do our own self-righteousness. And not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to be in there. So we can't go by our self-righteousness. Only those who have the right garments, which are spotless because they've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, For many are called, but few are chosen. The whole world has been called. You know, and there's no predestination. We've all been predestined to be conformed into the image of, and the likeness of his Son. We've all been called to do that. But few answer the call. So the Pharisees, working hard because they were pretty mad, tried to lay another trap for Jesus by asking him if it was lawful for God's children to pay taxes. Is it lawful? I know one ministry that didn't pay taxes and they got thrown into jail. They were and they were surprised about it. It's like, hey, you know, pay your taxes. Follow it. But what the Pharisees were asking was, you know, are, are the people supposed to follow another king besides God, Jesus? And they were trying to trap him. But he said, everybody should be loyal to the government and be good citizens, basically, paraphrasing it. And he said, show me the coin. And it says, whose picture is on it? It's Caesar's. Well, if it's Caesar's, then give it to Caesar. So we look at our money. And what do we say? Well, you know, it's, it's Caesar's. Give it to Caesar. Because our true riches are in heaven. Amen? He said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Jesus stated clearly that support of our government and support for our God should not clash. Even though they're two separate kingdoms, the earthly kingdom with its laws and rules, the heavenly kingdom with its laws and rules, but Jesus came as king and wasn't threatened by the earthly system. Because why? Because the government was on his shoulder. Jesus actually authored government. We need government, not the government that we have. We need a government that's righteous. So we must obey the laws of the land unless the laws of God supersede which is what Jesus said, that was the bottom line. 
In Matthew 22, 23 through 33, Jesus established the truth of the resurrection after the Sadducees questioned him regarding marriage in heaven. He said in verse 30, For in the resurrection there's, they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as, as, as the angels in heaven. So Jesus just kept answering them, giving them wise answers. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees got together. Now normally they don't like each other. Okay, it's like a Baptist and a charismatic or somebody and somebody else. Normally don't like the way they worship, don't like anything about each other. But the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they got together and they decided that they were going to ask Jesus the greatest commandment. So, you know, I can just see them like, well, what do you think? Well, what should we do? Because they're always trying to discredit him. So then one of them said, Matthew 22, 35 through 40, then one of them, which was a lawyer, called him, asked him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these commandments, on these two commandments, hang all the laws and the prophets. So that was kind of the end of that discussion. And then he challenges the Pharisees on his identity, and they didn't answer any, they didn't want no more questions. It's like, okay, I can see that we're, we're beat, we're beat at that. But their rage only intensified. In Matthew 23, he exposed the religious leaders as frauds. So they're sitting there in their fine clothes, because they, they, even though they didn't talk anymore, they're sitting there and they're listening. So in Matthew 23, 1 through 10, he told the people to watch out for the, the religious leaders. They bind heavy burdens on you, but they won't help you at all. They love the attention of being religious and holy and love the best of everything, but these people are not to be esteemed. He said, do what they say, but don't do what they do. So he was, he was telling the people, you know, watch out for these religious leaders. They're no good. They're not from God. God didn't send them. And then in Matthew 23, here he says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. He destroyed the myth that great people are those who think they're better than everybody else. He said, the greatest among you? First of all, he said, if you want to come into the kingdom, you got to come in like a little child. Well, that's kind of humiliating. And then he said, to top it off, you have to be a servant. Two things, be a child, be a servant, to come into the kingdom. Now picture those fancy guys in the robes and everything else in the back of the room listening to this. So he was trying to help them see the character of God. And he only had three days to do it. So then Jesus pronounced eight woes on the scribes and Pharisees and general religious people. In Matthew 23, 13 through 36, Jesus exposes the characteristics of false teachers and false prophets that claim to speak for God. Now this is not only good for then, it's good for now too. It's the same list because you know what? Not, nothing ever changes. Back then, people were the same as people are now, except for we have electricity, which I'm really happy. I love electricity. I love running water. I don't know how they lived back then, but I'm glad to live here with a little more convenience and refrigerators and stuff like that. But the character of people haven't changed at all. So these eight woes are also good for today, false teachers, false prophets. First one right off, they are hypocrites. By their attitudes, they kept the people away from the kingdom of heaven. They made holiness difficult, if not possible, to, to attain. They draw attention to themselves and how great they are, and God is only second to them. So when you see teachers drawing attention to themselves on their great spirituality or their great this or their great that, get away from them. 
God is first. God's not second. So they're hypocrites. Number two, and this is Jesus speaking. Number two, they deceive the people into thinking they, the religious people, are right with God because they can make long, eloquent prayers. Just because somebody speaks well doesn't mean that they're right with God. All it means is that they can speak well. They demanded that people who could least afford it could make huge sacrifices for God. Or the modern thing would be, give me $1,000 toward my new jet. And you're asking for somebody who's making $2,000 a month. Number three, they worked zealously to make disciples for themselves and not God. They were interested in a megachurch with many campuses and not with meeting the true spiritual needs of the people. And when you start to look at some of these megachurches and you look at the workers and, you know, they're working 12-hour shifts and they're not getting paid and, uh, you know, and yet the, the ones on the top have got all five mansions and they're all tax-free and, you know, when you start looking at these things, they work zealously to make disciples for themselves. So they could say they have a big church. And granted, it would be nice to see a few more people in here. But the, our motive has to be not so we can have a big church and feel like we're relevant. I want more people so that they can learn about God. I think we're good teachers. I think we have a, a good program for kids. I think we have a lot of things going for us. That's why I want people in here. I don't want them self-clearance. And I can, when we go to conferences, say, oh, you know, we've got 200 people in our church. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. I want it for people. Okay, number four. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were spiritually blind guides trying to lead blind people in the way. And they were only succeeding in leading the people to destruction. How many churches lead in destruction because they're not giving you the gospel? They're not telling you how Jesus died on the cross. The cross isn't the central thing. Other things can be central in that church. Serving is a big one. You know, the gospel of works, we have to serve. Um, different things, money is a big thing in a lot of churches. Number five, they were self-righteous and legalistic. They would tithe to the exact penny, nothing more and nothing less. Very, very legalistic in their things that they did, but they forgot the things that really mattered. See, if you have to sit down to your prayer time with a clock and let the clock go off in an hour, and you're watching the clock, and then you get up and say, oh, I did my hour's worth of prayer, then you might as well have just not done it at all if that's how you're going to be about something. God's not impressed that you spend a distracted time. I mean, think about your spouses. If all I'm spending time with Clarence and we're out somewhere and he's decided to take me to a nice dinner and I'm looking at my watch all the time, okay, um, probably another 15 minutes here, how is he going to feel? He's going to feel terrible. Well, how do you think God feels when you're sitting there looking and saying, okay, I've got 30 more minutes, then I can get up. But that's how they were. They were legalistic. But they forgot the things that mattered, like judgment, mercy. They were meticulous about insignificant things, but they gave no heed to the way they treated people. They didn't treat people with compassion. Number six, they looked great on the outside because they followed ceremonial cleansing. But on the inside, Jesus said they were full of extortion and excess. Anybody can look good in a suit. And I don't mean that. <laughs> you do. Number seven, they were whitewashed sepulchers. Beautiful on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside, just like a grave. No life. Religious people but no relationship with God. Number eight, you pay homage, Jesus said this, you pay homage to the dead saints, but you kill the, you plot to kill the prophets of your day. So he kept letting them know that I know, I'm, I'm on to you. 
chief priests and Pharisees and scribes. I know, I know what you're going to do. And he warned them. He said, you're not going to escape the damnation of your actions just because you claim to speak for God. So he gave this warning to them. And then he prophesied that the religious leaders would kill and persecute God's real, real disciples. And 37 years later, in 70 AD, Jerusalem was totally destroyed. So he knew what he was talking about. Matthew 23, 20, 37 through 39, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because of his intense love for the people. And in a few more days, he would be giving his life for those people. Matthew 24, Jesus departed from the temple and his disciples privately asked him about the end of days. It was on people's mind even then, and it, as it is on our mind now as we see the day approaching. And Jesus gave a, a bullet sign, 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 sign. Beware of false prophets, beware of wars and rumors of wars. You know, and he gave a, a little dissertation on that. And we've talked about it so many times, I don't want to go through that. He talked about the persecution of the church. He talked about the great tribulation. He emphasized that no man is going to know the day or the time, but when you see the signs, start looking up. Matthew 24, 37 through 44, the destruction of the wicked and the fate of the unbeliever. It was a warning to those who did not believe. But as in the days of Noah, and this is the scripture, but as in the days of Noah were, so shall it be um, at the coming of the Son of Man. For as the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. There shall be two in the field, the one taken and the one left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you don't know what hour your Lord does come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready for such an hour as you think not, son of man cometh. So it's all these little wisdom things that he's getting in just before he's crucified. And then in chapter 2, 25, he addresses the believers and emphasizes readiness. First parable, the story of the ten virgins. You can be saved, but not ready. That was the, basically, that was the thing. Ten of them were saved. They were all virgins, but five were not ready. And those who are not ready are those who take a lazy attitude toward their salvation. Do not be lazy about your salvation. Do not be lazy about the things of God. Those who are lazy will be left behind. We can't afford to be lazy right now. The Son of Man's coming soon. The next parable is the parable of the talents. Those who refuse to use what God gives them for the good of the kingdom will not be allowed entrance into the kingdom. Imagine that. And then he finished the chapter by proclaiming the judgment of those saints who do not do the work of the kingdom. Now, we're not talking about a gospel of works. But we're talking about people who are born again, you automatically want to do something because you love God. Not because you want to be seen by anybody, not because there's a need in the church, but you want to do it because you love God. Amen? Those who refuse to show compassion and take care of others to the best of their ability. I mean, you can't, you can't save all the puppies in the middle, okay? You can't. You can't save everybody. You can't do everything for everybody. But you can do what God has called you to do. It's not hard. It's not difficult to figure out if you have a grace for it, then you can do it. Somebody tries to step out of something that they don't have a grace for, you'll know it right away because it will be difficult to do. But we're all called to do something. Amen? I mean, some of us can't do the physical work anymore, but we can give, we can pray. There's so many things that can be done. So he said that, you know, th those that take care of others, they said, Lord, you know, when did we see you 
without food? When did we see you naked? When did we see you in prison? And he said, when you've done it for the least of these, you've done it unto me. So it was another lesson on compassion. So when it came to pass, now we're up to Matthew 26. I mean, it goes fast, doesn't it, when you're kind of capsulizing. It's like the Reader's Digest version of it. So Matthew 26, 1 through 2 says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. And still the disciples were like clueless. But I can't, I can't be hard on them because I wasn't there. So I don't know if it was just too much for them to imagine because maybe they also thought that Jesus was going to be king on earth. So they were still holding out that hope. And so after that, Mary anointed Jesus for her, his burial. And then he had the Last Supper where he instituted communion confirming the new covenant with his body and his blood. And then he was seized in the garden by the chief priests and elders. So the last thing that he did was he confirmed the covenant with the sacrament of communion. And it's interesting, when he did the Last Supper, the first he did, he said, and one of you is going to betray me. And they were like, oh, um, is it me, Lord? I mean, that's how secure they were. They didn't even, I mean, think about it. Twelve of your friends that you've traveled with for three and a half years, you're sitting around a table, and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Well, these guys walked together. They stayed together. They did everything together. And he goes, now one of you is going to betray me. And you're like, but which one of us is... Which one of us could possibly do that? And he said, the one that I'm going to dip this sop in, and I'm going to give it to him. So he went to Judas, and he gave it to him. He said, quietly, what you're going to do, do quickly. And then Judas ran out. And then Jesus showed them communion. Then he gave them the communion. And he said, this is my body, and this is the, this is the blood. But he had to wait till after Judas left before he instituted it. And then ultimately, the ones who enthusiastically welcomed Jesus, shouting Hosanna in chapter 22, now we're, we're way past that, were the same ones who screamed crucify him at the end of the week. Because they realized that Jesus would not be made king on earth. So they turned on him. You know, people can turn on a dime. They took out their disappointment on him rather than trying to see God's bigger plan. And this is, I guess this is what the point is for tonight, is don't be disappointed with the way that the next year or two shake out and turn on God. Because he said many are going to lose faith. The love of many is going to grow cold. He's got all these warnings for us for the end times. Don't be disappointed because God's got everything precise. It's like a, 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 a Swiss watch. It's like something that just runs with precision. And he's got every event in our lives precisely mapped out. So all we have to do is walk in it. And then not just ignore the temptation to get disappointed. Ignore the temptation to be angry at God. I mean, I don't know what's going any more than anybody does. I mean, we see the signs. We've just read some of the things. But we have to know, even if it costs us more than what we thought it would cost us, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. But don't be disappointed so that at the end of the week you're, you're one of those that are yelling, crucify him. And that was the, the, the warning that I felt. I didn't sleep last night at all. And this kept turning over and turning over. I like my Sunday afternoons because I don't have to do anything. <laughs> but except for Sunday afternoons where I have to minister, it's, it's not the same. But it just kept turning over. Trust God to know what's best in these end days. Amen. Trust him to know. He's got it precisely mapped out. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to. Don't try to second guess, well, this is the way it's going to go. 
I talked to somebody, and I've shared this before, that she's going, yeah, and God's going to rapture us up before all the bad happens. And I thought, I, I, no, I told her. I said, no, I said, don't expect that. It would be nice, wouldn't it? But we've got work to do. How many of you have unsaved relatives? I think everybody's hand would go up. So there's our work. How many neighbors are unsaved? How many people in the grocery store are unsaved? Let's use this last hour. Let's pour our lives out as a living sacrifice that God has called us to do. And let's get to work for the kingdom. Amen. Let's work for God. I don't want it to be a shame that is coming. I don't want him to say, well, I find faith on earth. I want him to come and find faith at Faith Assembly. Find faith that we kept it. I look at our, our little bunch of people and I said, man, these are faithful people, Lord. They're faithful. Didn't miss a beat during COVID. They're faithful. Faithful people. So don't be disappointed if things don't happen the way that you think that they should. God's got it all under control. Just like the crucifixion. God had it all under control. Amen? He told them plainly. He spoke plainly to them, but they didn't hear it because they had their minds set that it was going to go one way. When it didn't go that way, they got disappointed and they turned on him. Amen? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time. Lord, help us to be stable. Help us to be fruitful. Father, help us to, we're not going to fear in the end times. We're going to be aggressive. Father, we're going to be on the offense, not on the defense. We are thanking you, Father. Lord, we lift up every unsaved relative that is represented in this room and by Facebook Live. We lift them up before you, that Holy Spirit, that you would speak to their hearts. Father, you would draw them. It's the goodness of God that draws our, our unsaved loved ones. And Father, we're thanking you that as we're right here and as we're praying in agreement, that you're ministering to our unsaved loved ones, that you're drawing them to you. And we're thanking you for that. Lord, we're not letting go of them. We're not going to look at our situation and pity ourselves. Father, we're going on the offense because you're always on the offense. You're never on the defense. And we are thanking you because as you're on the offense, we can be on the offense. And we're just thanking you. Father, we just thank you for this week as Jesus rode triumphantly and got into Jerusalem and that he knew what he was set. He set his face to Jerusalem. He knew what he was going to do. And Lord, we are just thanking you. We thank you for the preciseness, for the precision. Father, that you've got every hair on our head counted. Father, the, the, the sparrows, Father, are fed so that we can know that we'll be fed. And we just thank you, Lord, you're so good to us. You're just so good to us, and we're just so grateful. I'm grateful for this church, Lord, and I just thank you for every saint of God. Father, I just thank you for them. I thank you for blessing them. I thank you, Lord, for keeping them. Lord, we're just giving you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every time I see this beautiful picture of Gerald's Baptistry, Jesus in the garden praying that night, those disciples were with him, some of us were there. And Jesus said, I must go a little further, a little farther.
we're in that time. I mean, we're at the end of the end. That's where we're at. All these generations that have went on that were looking for the Lord, they're in the presence of the Lord. I'll tell you something. We're that, I, I, I believe what y'all is shouting out. We're that generation. We're that generation that is going to witness the coming of the Lord. Praise God. I'll tell you what. We ought to get to that place like Jesus himself. That to be like Jesus is what is what he wants us to be. Amen. Be like him and just say, Lord, I can't make it happen. How many knows you can't save your loved ones? You, you can't do anything. Jesus has already done everything that's going to happen to get anybody saved. The only thing we can do is pray, live the life, witness, encourage, and just let God take care of it. Amen. Because Jesus is coming soon. You know what we have to do right now is just say, Lord, have thy own way. You know, that's what Jesus did in that garden that night. Great drops of blood. He sweated great drops of blood that night. That's anguish. That's agony. That, that's really <laughs> concern for the for the, the loved ones and those around. Jesus knew what he had to do. See, he was still 100% flesh and blood on this earth. And he still felt the pain. He could have called 10,000 angels that day. But he chose not to. Because he told the Father, nevertheless, not my will, but that be done. Can we sing that chorus to that song tonight? Have thy own
Father, we just thank you for doing it. 